Thank you for listening to this message from Tree of Life Church. Our prayer is that it will be a blessing to you and that you will find it helpful for life. So open up your heart to receive God's word for you. So Hebrews 10, 39. I don't want to go a lot and inter- um, revisit, um, review. You can go online. If you are here last week, go listen to it again. I think it's a great foundational scripture. This is a series on faith. We are people of faith, amen. We believe that this church is built on faith, on the principle of faith. We're here 39 years because of people of faith. We'll be here 39 more until Jesus tarries because we believe that God is a man of his word. And so <clears throat> we are walking a walk of faith, fighting the good fight of faith. You'll hear all those terms. We know them all. I want to bring you a, I don't say, it's not a different look because nothing's new in the Bible. It's a, maybe a different perspective, a fresh look today based on probably because of what we've been walking through. You know, the earth is full of challenges and what it does, it just sucks the life out of you. It sucks the faith out of you at times and we need to be reminded where our faith comes from. And uh, we tend to lean on some different things in tough times because maybe we forgot what it really is based on and we try and do some things in our own works, our own ability, and that just doesn't help the problem, perhaps even worsens it at time. And this is what the, he- the writer in Hebrews is expressing. And in Hebrews 10, to give us some context in verse 39, Hebrews 10, he is speaking to a group of first century Jews that are believers, that believe Jesus is the Messiah, and they've chosen to follow Jesus in a life of faith instead of the law based on principles and laws and rules that how you have to live to be better. You are responsible for being better, for doing good, and a sense of righteousness is based on your works and not on faith or what Jesus has done. Because of that stand, they are being heavily persecuted. So in order to understand Hebrews 11, which is what we'll be doing the next several weeks, we need to really get a glimpse of Hebrews 10 to really understand what the writer is, why the writer is writing what he's writing and who he's writing it to. So let me read verse 10 for you. Uh, I'm sorry, Hebrews 10, 39, then we'll get on to verse 11. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith are fully persuaded and preserve their souls. Now, last week, we used the definition in the Greek, in the New Testament's written in Greek for faith as the Greek word pistis, which really speaks to fully persuaded, be fully persuaded or convinced. And understanding that faith is not anything that we manufacture or create. And sometimes we'll look at, if we don't feel like we're getting an answer, we'll think, I don't have enough faith. I, try, I have to try and create more faith or generate more faith. Or, or people will look at someone, oh, bless her heart, she didn't have enough faith. Or all those kind of things. We've heard all that. We've heard all that. And I want to just talk to you a little bit about that through the course of this series. That if I could generate or create faith in my heart, then Jesus wouldn't have had to come. Or in a sense, if I could create and generate faith in my heart, I could be responsible for my own salvation because I am saved by faith through grace. So it's not in a sense trying to create or generating any more manufacturing, any more faith in our strength and ability. It's continuing to be connected to the divine persuader, being fully persuaded, the divine creator, the divine initiator, the divine persuader. So it's not really looking to uh, have a resolution of a hardship. It's looking to strengthen a relationship. And so really that's the basis of our faith. So that's what the first century Jews are struggling with. They want to go back to where they were because of being persecuted because of their faith. And maybe it's better if we just, we let go of that. We go back to where we were before and we won't have to experience that. And I just got to say, I don't blame them for that. So Hebrews 11, one, 
It goes on to say this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. He spoke it to an existence so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. They weren't here before God spoke. By faith, Abel. Now, I told you last week we dig into Abel and Enoch a little bit more. I don't really have time, maybe another time. So forgive me for that. But you can go back last week and get a little more context. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Two brothers, same parents, two people on the planet, growing up together. Parents are telling them how we worship God. We're going to bring an offering to God. Come on, parents. You're going to tell your kids how you worship God, how you love God, how you serve God, how your kids are going to learn. I'm just going to take them to church. No, they're going to learn from you what you're telling them, what you're doing. And so eventually their sons out of their job brought their resources. Come on, somebody. Their parents showed them that. Their parents told them that. The parents that got kicked out of, evicted from their home is still telling them to worship their God. Come on. It's a great one for parenting. We're not talking about that today. Nonetheless, okay. So, so uh, Abel was divinely persuaded, brought God his firstborn, best offering, the scripture says. Cain, who's the older brother, just the Bible says brought something at some point in time, just brought an offering when he was ready to bring an offering. Same parents. I have to believe they were telling their boys the same thing. Now, boys, listen up. Here's how we worship God. They eventually form their own opinion because we have a free will. Abel, divinely persuaded. You know what? I believe it. I believe God. I'm going to give God my best. I'm going to give him my first and my best. Cain's like, yeah, I'm not so sure I'm there yet. I'm just going to bring him some stuff. The Bible says God honored Abel's offering, but not Cain's. It's important for us to understand. Maybe an aspect of our faith is bringing God our best and our first. Instead of just bringing something to God. Enoch walked on the planet 365 years to the day One year for every day of our year walked with God, the Bible says. Enoch was taken to heaven. Enoch's dad, our grandfather, Mahalel, lived like 875 years, and then he died. Enoch's dad, dad, Jared, lived like 906 years, and then he died. Enoch's son, Methuselah, lived like 969 years, and then he died. Enoch lived 365 years, and God took him. Four men, one fully persuaded, Finds himself one day walking with God because he walked with God every day. God said, Enoch, how long have we been walking together? Enoch says, this is, this is year 365 to the day. He goes, today, I want you to see my place. And walks right into heaven. Now, his grandfather, father, and his son were not apparently divinely persuaded. Come on, somebody. So every day we make a decision. Amen? We're going to be divinely persuaded by God. So when we get Hebrews 11, 1 through 6, it's important to understand that, and I'm gonna, that's my review. There we go. Uh, verse four, by faith, Abel offered God a more acceptable sacrifice through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he's died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so he wouldn't see death. He was not found because God had taken him. Uh, now, before he was taken, he was commended at having pleased God, both those men we just discussed. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. So for you and I to continue to walk in faith and build our faith, it's given God your best, given him God your first, and it's given it to God and walking with him every single day. It's not so complicated. But life gets in the way. We have challenges, we have struggles, we have our own free will, and we experience things that really are pulling at our faith, pulling at our, our belief and trust in God. And so 
So the writer of Hebrews is addressing that with the first century Christians. And so the next scripture, he talks about Noah, which we're not going to talk about. And then he jumps into verse eight, Hebrews 11, eight, and he starts talking about the, the, the father of faith. And Abraham's known as the father of faith. In fact, in this passage of scripture on faith, he's mentioned more than any other hero of faith. And now if he would say to first century Christians, you know, Abraham, they would, they would know immediately the life and story of Abraham. He was one of the heroes. He was talked about for, throughout time and celebrated. So they would know even more than we know. They have more access or had more to information than we had. And so he's going to use Abraham's life, the writer is, to encourage the first century Christians in their faith, the ones who are ready to go back to the way things were before because of the challenges we're facing. So let's take a look in Hebrews eleven eight. By faith, Abraham obeyed. We can say it this way. By divine persuasion, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was out to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, divine persuasion, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land as a foreigner, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise that was for him and his children and grandchildren on down. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder of, of, is God. By faith, by divine persuasion, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead. Isn't that funny how they this? Hey, Abraham, let's describe Abraham to me as good as dead, right? How'd you like to be friends talk about you that way? Abraham's just as good as dead. That guy over there, I don't know. We're born descendants. This thing is funny to me. As good as dead, we're born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Now jumping down to verse 17, still with Abraham, another aspect of his life. By divine persuasion, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises wasn't the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, your son shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he received him back. There's a lot about Abraham in here. We're going to tackle it all today. And I want you to understand something. The writer of Hebrews is writing to first century Jews that were being persecuted. Their, their shops were being boycotted, being shut down. They're being evicted from their homes. People weren't selling things to them. People weren't buying from them. They'd be walking down the streets. People would be pointing at them, throwing rocks at them. Uh, they would, some of them had been martyred and they are trying to figure out what are we going to do? I, is this what happens when you sign up to follow Jesus as the Messiah? What's the plan here? And you can only imagine them getting together and stuff in small groups and, and part of it just for safety and saying, what are we going to do? I don't know. What do you think we should do? What do you think the plan is? Where should we go? Having all the same discussions that we have during those times and we experience those things in our life. Now, I love to text. How's that for a transition, right? So I love to text. I'm a texter. Don't call me. Don't email me. Really don't text me. But anyways, that's, 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 sorry. Um, I love the text. So my wife gets frustrated because I, I text people. I text people these long texts and back and forth. She's like, why don't you just pick up the phone and call them? I'm like, because I don't want to talk to them. And she's like, why do you want to talk to them? I was like, because I don't know what they're going to say. And they're going to ask me, you know, whatever. And if I don't want to keep talking, I just stop texting. Or, and, it's some, and, and it always happens. And I'm just, I'm outing myself right here, trying to be transparent. And a lot of you out there are just like me, by the way. I know that. And so uh, I'll be texting and someone will think, wow, I got Pastor Don. I'm texting him. He's engaged, obviously, right now. I'm just going to call him. They'll call me. I won't pick up. Why are you calling me? We're texting right now, right? That's what I do, right? So the hard thing for a texter like me is that I'm also a very emotional person. You, you know that. You see me preaching and all that. I'm a very emotional person. For, for a very emotional person to be a texter, that's, that's a difficult thing because there's not emotion in a text. 
You get a text and it's your emotion that's the filter and it may be wrong. And it may, what do they mean by that? You know, and it's, just, it's a hard thing, but still I, I still text and I'm still an emotional person. The problem with an emotional person is not just the, you're trying to read the emotion and texting is making decisions because when you're talking about faith, you can't make faith decisions based on emotion. And here's a group of people on the writer saying, hey, emotional first century Jews, understandably so, quit making decisions based on emotion. You've been divinely persuaded. I'm blessed to have mentors in my life. And Pastor Joe Brooks was here not long ago. And he's one of my mentors, one of my, like a dad to me. And in fact, he just called me the other day. He calls me, he texts me, right? He calls me. His is the one I'll pick up, right? He calls. In fact, if I see his phone, I'll stand, I'll stand up at attention and take his call. Yes, sir. You know? And so he calls me the other day and, and he's just talking to me and encouraging me through the times and everything. And he always tells me this. He says, Don, do not make an emotional decision. Why would you say that? Why would you say that? And I start crying. No, I'm just kidding. You know, you hurt my feelings. I don't know why. Why would you say that? You know, don't make it. Whatever you do, don't make an emotional decision. Never make decisions out of emotion. But I love emotion. I make all my decisions that way. Does that scare you? I don't know. I don't mean to, but I I don't. I have a hard time. And so I'm like the first century Jews. And I'm like, what are we going to do? What's going to happen here? And they're in the emotion of, come on, you've been there. They're in the emotion of it all. And all of a sudden, in the emotion of it all, faith is just like, where's faith at? We're making decisions based on emotion. And, and so in order to address that with these first century Jews, the writer of Hebrews says, well, let's take a look at Abraham's life. You just saw this. I mean, he's going through some stuff and he's following God no matter what. And so we're going to take a look at that. And, <clears throat> and I think it's important for us to understand that, that we have to have our, our faith has to be based on something other than emotion or opinion. Some, some people are, are opinionated people, right? That's that the, the, that said the older men get, the more they're in love with their opinions, and the older women get, the more they're in love with their feelings. That's different in my house. I think it's completely flipped. I'm, I'm loving my emotions more and more today than I did yesterday, you know? And, but we seem to think if we're that way, we're wired that way, we seem to think that my feelings, therefore, become my truth, or, or my opinion, therefore, becomes my truth, and, and then becomes the, the enemy of faith sometimes. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, well, let's just look then. Because you all know Abraham. Oh, yeah, Abraham. We, we all know Abraham. He was going through the same stuff you're going through. No way, not Abraham. He couldn't be. He's a hero. He, he did great. And so the writer of Hebrews decides to take him back because they're wanting to go back. We don't want to do this anymore. We're going to go back to the way it was through a system of works, through a system of the law. It seemed like it was working out better. We definitely weren't losing our life or our businesses, our homes, et cetera, et cetera. And so the writer says, you want to go back and all your emotion, I'll take you back. But I'm going to take you thousands of years back. I'm going to take you 1,800 years back. I'm going to take you back. And we're going to look at some heroes and see how they did it even before the law was there that you want to go and live by. When there was no law, how about that, first century Jews? We're going to go back before there was a law that you want to hold on to and see how men and women followed God and lived. And so he takes them back. He takes them back to Abel and Enoch, Noah and Abraham and on, and we'll study all that out. <clears throat> it's important, I think, to note that when you start talking about Abraham, when we look in the scripture, Abraham establishes a relationship with God 300 years before the law. He builds a relationship with God before the law, but we seem to think that for some reason our relationship with God is based on our traditions or our religions or our actions or our works as if we could be good enough or we could do enough. And he says, Abraham was doing this 300 years before the law that you love and want to go back to was even established. And so Abraham had a relationship with God based on faith. He was divinely persuaded by the divine one. And so he's trying to convince them to relate to God by their faith. Again, 
being fully persuaded. Okay, so who does the persuading? God does the persuading. You cannot persuade yourself. So faith, again, is divine persuasion. So in verse 8, we're going to go back there. Let's take a look in verse 8 again, starting there. It says, by faith, Abraham, by being divinely persuaded, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go to a place. Listen, when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive it as an inheritance. That's exciting. Hey, Abraham, I'm going to take you somewhere. Then it's going to be yours, and it's going to be great. Great, where is it? I'm not going to tell you. Well, what does it look like? I'm not going to tell you. Well, how long is it going to take to get there? I'm not going to tell you. This sounds wonderful, right? It's like... What's the plan? I'm not going to tell you. Okay. All right. I'm in. Sign me up. Let's go. We're going to take him out to a place. You're going to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And the first century Jews would understand that because they're like, what are we going to do now? I didn't think all this was going to happen when I signed up for God. Everything's changed now. Is this what happens? And then now it's the point where you brought a friend for the first time. And now there's like, great, pastor. I just brought a friend. It's the first time. And you're telling him when you sign up to go with God, you have no idea where you're going. <laughs> and all this stuff's going to happen to you. Well, what he's telling them <clears throat> is your faith is built on something greater than what you can see, feel, or hear. He's trying to get them to remind them. See, you were divinely persuaded at one time, so don't lose that. You don't need to go way back there. You don't need to go back. You need to keep going forward. So when Abraham is going to uh, show to us, reveal to us, it's not about the destination as much as it is about your traveling companion. You're never going to fully understand where God wants to take you but you need to be divinely persuaded to go with God. And so he's trying to encourage them in that. So they would, they would know, like, what's going on? They're wondering, what's happening? What are we going to do? Is this, is this what we get for following Jesus? What's the plan? And, and that's our struggle. What, what are we going to do with what's happening around about us? It doesn't make sense. But what if faith is really not fully understanding, but being fully persuaded? And so we look at what the writer's doing. He's like, hey, guys, feeling a little lost, wondering what the plan is? Yep, so did Abraham. Well, what did he do? Well, let me tell you. He signed up for a trip. He didn't know the destination. He just figured the traveling companion he would have would figure it out. He was convinced he would know. And so right now we're saying, you're talking about blind faith. Well, not necessarily. I'm not talking about blind faith. When your faith is in God, in based in God, what's blind about that? The blindness may be you don't know enough about your God or your traveling companion, which is what the whole relationship component is for. But I liken it like this way. Uh, Callie was here. She, she went with my niece and, and her friends. And, and uh, it wasn't that long ago that she called me up one day and says, Dad, I got something going on with my truck. And I'm like, you're calling me. Why? <laughs> she even put gas in it. I'll tell you how to do that. Yeah, I can do that. Air up your tire. I don't know what to work on vehicles. And so she's like, well, something's not happening. My AC's not working right. And I don't know. And, and it's, for me, it's like, uh, does it have Freon or whatever? You know, I know very little is a blowing. All I know is that it was cold and now it's hot. Right? That's all I know. And so there's a shop that we take our vehicles because we know them, we trust them, it's what they do. They're tree of lifers, we've known them for years, they've been a part of this church forever. And so I'm on the phone and said, well, honey, I'm not there, there's not anything I could do, I couldn't anyways, but why don't you just take your truck over here and let them check it out, and then tell me, and then call me and tell me what they say, you know, what is it going to take to fix it, what's wrong, what's happening, all this kind of stuff. And because I really couldn't help her out a whole lot on that. <clears throat> and so she did. And so, uh, you know, she comes back and she's trying to tell me. And I said, you know what? And she knows her dad. So she goes, you know what, dad? I, there's no point in me trying to tell you. Let me play the voicemail from the mechanic, right? And I'm like, I'm like well, can you text it to me? And uh, so I'm on the phone and I'm listening uh, to it. And I'm like, yeah, okay, okay, sure. What, whatever, I'm not even sure what that is. Or what does that do? Okay, and I'm just, what does it cost? Okay, well, if that's what you think, okay, it's what they do. And I told Callie, I said, I said, Callie, I said, well, maybe we should do this. I think we should do this. And she's like, are you sure? And I'm like, well, that's what they do. I mean, I trust them, 
That's what they do. They're the mechanic. They do cars. They do trucks. They do stuff. They're, it's what they do. I, I, don't know, I don't know enough to tell you about it. I don't have an understanding of it, but it's what they do. I can't look in there myself and tell you, and I can't just by listening tell you, but I'm convinced that's what they do. So let me tell you what God does. God guides people. It's what he does. God leads people even when they don't know the destination. That's what God does. God has been doing it from the beginning of time. He's good at it. You don't need to know. He's good at it. It's what he does. I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced of that. God's been directing and leading and guiding people for thousands of years. And God is there from the beginning to the end. And God knows how many hairs are on your head. And God knows the number of days for you. God has a book written about your life. He knew everything about you before you were even formed in the womb. May I suggest that you go ahead and move when he says move. And if you ask him where you're going and he says nothing, don't let that sway you. So I told Callie, have him fix the truck. Callie, have them replace whatever. Whatever it is, Callie, have them replace the horn fluid. Have them give you a dipstick extender and have them put a new flux capacitor in there. I don't know. I really don't know. But I'm convinced that they do. So do it. It's what they do. I don't know what it is. But we just put the hands, the truck, we just put the truck in the hands of a specialist. Why can't we do that with God? Why can't we put our life, our journey in the hands of the specialist? It's what he does. And they're telling the, he's telling the first century Jews, put your hands back in the one who divinely persuaded you. It's what he does. I know things are hard. I know you want to know the plan. I know you want to know the destination. I know you want to know the timing, but just trust God. It's what he does. He leads people in unknown times, unknown places. As if we say, God, I'm not going anywhere unless you tell me where we're going. I'm not going anywhere unless you tell me what it's like, what's going to happen there, how much time it's going to take. And, and what's crazy is we always think that a relationship with God is all about a destination. He is the destination. He is the destination. That's why God won't tell you the, the plan sometimes. The plan is him. He's the plan. Just be with them. Just go with God. Sometimes that's the plan. You go with God and trust your traveling companion that you'll get where you're supposed to get. Since when do we have to understand everything to start moving? Divine persuasion tells me I am persuaded in my companion, not in my destination. I don't need to know all the directions. So just go with God. It'll be okay. Wait a minute, what about the will of God? I want to know the will of God, and I get that. But let me tell you, the most important thing about the will of God is to be with him. The most important thing about the will of God is to be with him. And the first century Jews living out of their emotion saying, I needed that. I need to hear about Abraham's life. I need to hear about it. Enoch walked every day, even in the midst of Enoch every day. I need to hear that. Is it possible that we can be more concerned about God's plan than God's presence? Is it? Is it possible that you and I and our humanity in the midst of our circumstances on this broken world can be more concerned about God's plan than God's presence and God's more concerned about his presence, which will lead to his plan? <clears throat> so God's working. And here's the thing about God's working with a timeline of eternity. 
from beginning to the end of eternity. God's working with this timeline, and so we come on the scene, and we're like, okay, God, and we're obsessed with time and space, and so God's one that doesn't even, isn't concerned about time and space, because he's seen things from beginning to end for all eternity, and so we show up, and we say, oh, God, okay, I get the eternity thing. That's awesome, and I know that we're going to have eternal life with you and be there for eternity, and that's cool stuff, but listen, I want to know about this. I, I, could you just tell me that? Uh, okay, that's awesome, God. I know, I know forever. So tra- I know. Could you tell me just like, but this right here, can you just tell me about that? Can you just tell me about that, God? And I get the eternity thing, God. Can you just tell me about that right there? And I'm, obsess- I'm obsessed with that. What's going to happen? What's going to happen right here? I'm concerned what happens in this small space. What are you going to do for me here? Let's talk about that. Sometimes it's hard to remember that the point of all this is to prepare us for all this. We just got to go with them. We just got to go with them. The Bible says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his soul? So we have to go with our traveling companion. The writer of Hebrews says, Abe did not know the plan. He did not know where he was going. And did somebody tell you that if you walked with God, you'd always know where you're going? Well, they lied. They lied. And going back to Abel, did somebody tell you that if you just had enough faith that nothing bad would happen to you? Well, they lied. But you already know that (laughs) because you've experienced that the moment you started walking with God. But here's what I know. You can trust your traveling companion. Hebrews 11.9 then, continuing the Abraham's story, writing the, the Hebrew writer to the first century Jews. By faith, he went to live in a land of promise, was promised, but he lived there as in a foreign land, as if he wasn't his. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. promise. Look at what the writer of Hebrews is telling the first century Jews who, wa- who wanted to go back. God says, a- a- God says to Abraham, I'm going to show you this place. This place is yours. It's my promise. It's great. It's for you. And Abraham takes his son, Isaac, takes his grandson, Jacob, said, here, boys, all this right here, man, God gave it to us. This is the promise of God. And they're like, okay, dad, let's go down in there and let's go take, let's go live there. And he's like, oh, no, no, we got to live in, let's build some tents. We got to live right here. Dad, why do we got to live out here? God gave that to us. Oh, yeah, yeah, but we can't live there yet, but let's just do the tents. Dad, let's go down there and build a house. If it's ours, let's go down there and build a house. What are you talking about? No, 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 we're kind of still like foreigners and stuff. We got to kind of stay on the outskirts here. But, but if it's ours, God, Dad, I don't understand. If God gave it to you, let's go take it then. Let's take it. No, no, we can't do that. No, we can't do that. We'll be all right. Let's just build this tent right here. And let's get down there. And like, Dad, I don't understand, Dad. Grand, Grandpa, I don't understand. It's like, you've been in the desert too long. I mean, you know, get hot, need some water. And so if God says it's ours, why can't we go there and live there? If this is our promise, why can't we have it? Why don't we go take it? And everyone's like, no, no, we can't do that. No, not not yet. It's the hard thing that we have as believers, the theology of the already but not yet. We have a hard time with that. I mean, you want to mess with somebody's faith and throw in a tailspin, you talk about the already not yet. And so it's like that, like that when Jesus was on the cross, Jesus was on the cross and he, 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 he took our sins, our stripes. He, he, he took a shame and guilt and, and he finished the work. In fact, he said, Jesus on the cross says, it is finished. It's complete already. It's been done. The price has been paid by my stripes. You have been healed already paid, but, I, but I'm not healed. I'm not healed right now. Not yet. It's already been paid. It's already yours, but you're not be healed. Not yet. But if your manifestation doesn't come on the earth, it will come one day because the Bible says when we get to heaven one day, there is no more sickness. There is no more disease. There is no more crying. There's no more depression. There's no more fear. You may find your healing on the earth and praise the Lord for it and believe for it, or you may find it in heaven. But Jesus said, 
It's already paid for. Already, but not yet. And God said in the scripture, from the foundation of the earth, the lamb was slain. It was 1,800 years later that the lamb was actually slain. It was already completed, but it not yet had happened. And so people of faith, that messes with us. There's so many promises in the Bible. So Abraham's standing there, and the people of the first century Jews understand Abraham's life. And, and Abraham, the Bible says, never really, never got to experience the land, but it says Isaac, his son, and Jacob, his grandson, began to experience possession of the promise. And as if to say to you and I, here's something to really mess with you. Hey, you know what? Pray for something big. Ask God for something really big, and he might give it to your grandkid. <laughs> oh, sign me up. <laughs> but you know, God's a generational God. Come on, somebody. Can I tell you that when this church is established, and my mom's right there, it's anniversary month, I don't know that you ever could sit in the timeline of eternity and see here, but in the eyes of faith, I know God's got something great for Tree of Life. I know we're going to change this area. We're going to change the nations, and people are going to come and get saved. And so this is happening, and we're praying for it. We're giving to it already, but not yet. But one day it will. How could they have seen this 39 years ago? Why do we live for the moment? We haven't already not yet innocent times. And he's telling the first century Jews, hey, don't forget, already, but not yet. It's already been paid. It's already yours. It's already been declared, but not yet are you walking in it. Not yet has it been manifested. And so it is called a life of faith. A life of faith. What's interesting out of all these promises Abraham got, he never got to the land. He lived in the tent, as it says right there, as a foreigner. But God is a generational God, understand again, and his son and his grandson began to experience the promises. We are experiencing the promises of those who established this church 39 years ago. Some are already in heaven. Some are off to another assignment, but we're experiencing them. Hey, and can I tell you, we need to set this up for the generation to come behind us, people. We need to set this up for our teenagers. We need to set this up for our kids. And we may not experience some of the things we're believing God and sowing God and serving God for, but they will. They will. So we need, to, we need to say, okay, God, we're all in. Let's go. I'm okay with it already, not yet. I'm going to live for you every day of my life. I'm going to serve you every day of my life. Hebrews 11.11 says this. Um, By faith, Sarah, another aspect of it. By faith, Sarah received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, I love that, it just makes me laugh every time, him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as innumerable grains on by the sand by the seashore. Sarah's 100 years past age of childbirth. Abraham's 99 or as good as dead. In Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15, you can go read it another time. Abraham is like, God, you gave me this promise, but I only have one son. I only have one son, and I'm as good as dead. And she's barren. She can't conceive right now. It's impossible, as if Abraham said, God, it's impossible right now. And God said, now that it seems impossible, I'm going to give you a boy. I like that. I mean, because when the promise was given, it was possible. When the promise was given, Abraham can have kids. Sarah can have kids. I mean, naturally speaking, God could have done it back then, and it would have looked like, oh, well, he just had kids. Man, how lucky are you? But God waited till it was what? Impossible. God's, God waited till Abraham said, I can't. And God said, perfect, now's the time because I can. I'm waiting till you get to the I can't so I can be your I can. You can't do it, Abraham, but I can do it. 
God's waiting sometimes till we get to the end of ourselves. He's waiting for some of us to get to the end of ourselves where we can't do it. We can't serve ourselves. We, we can't do whatever needs to be done. And then God says, oh, it's not my turn. I'm, I'm, that's me right there. Right there. And so sometimes we come in, into church and uh, we feel like we're at the end of our rope. We've hit rock bottom, whatever the word, the cliche would be. And we think that that's a terrible place to be. I just don't have anywhere else to go. I, don't have, I can't do anything. I just can't. I just can't anymore. And God says, perfect. You're in the right place. Because when you can't, I can. When you can't, I can. And the first century Christians are reading the writings of Hebrew and being encouraged and saying, we can't go on, we can't do this. And they're reminded that everything that happens around about them, sometimes will get them to a place of I can't. And we think that's a bad place. I can't go on the pandemic. I just don't know what to do. I'm just in so much fear and there's all these things happening. I can't go on. I don't know if I'm going to get furloughed. I don't know if I'm going to get laid off. I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't do this anymore. And I don't know what's going to happen. And we get to that place. When we get to the I can't, God said, I can. I can do what you can't do. I'm strong when you're weak. How'd the job interview go? Well, I had a job interview. Great. I'm glad I got, got let go. I had a job interview lineup and I'm hoping this is the one I really need a job interview. And, and I went and I, and I did my best and everything. Well, how'd it go? How'd it go, man? It's like, well, they're not going to give me the job. Well, really? I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. God's got it. It's okay. Also, you lost the job opportunity and you lost your mind. <laughs> right. No, it's like, I'm trusting God. God's got it. I can't make it happen. I'm going to do my part, but God's got it. When we get to that place that I can, God says, yeah, I can't. God says, I can. I can. When you realize trusting in yourself, believing in yourself, serving yourself gets you no farther, you can come to a place of surrender. So Abe says, I'm as good as dead. Sarah's past age. And God says, I'm going to take this. I'm going to take it from here. I got it. And when you look in the book of Romans, don't you can write this down. Romans four, you can read in Romans. You see Abraham's life in Romans. And it says there, you see, Abraham did not weaken. It says in scripture in faith or being fully persuaded, even considering his body as good as dead and Sarah's unable to conceive. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. He was fully convinced the scripture says, or fully persuaded in our context, God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, right? Standing with God, because no matter what, he trusted God. He was fully persuaded by the divine one. The writer in Hebrews tells the first century Jews that all the terrible things happening around you will remind you that you can't, you can't, you can't, but God can, but God can. Hebrews 11, let's go on to the next one. We've got to close with this last, last piece of Abraham here that he's wanting to convey to the first century Jews about faith. By divine persuasion, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac because God finally fulfilled the promise. And so Isaac's born, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. He believed in the power of a resurrection from which, figuratively speaking, he did not receive him back. So here's the story. Abraham received the promise God had given him to be the father of many nations, that his descendants would number the stars in heaven, the sands on the seashore. All of a sudden, he gives him the promise. His name is Isaac. And when Isaac hits about 13 years old, God says, Abraham, I want you to go up to this mountain I'm going to tell you about. I want you to get up there. I don't want you to sacrifice your son. You want me to do what? The son that was the promise? Yeah, I want you to go up there. I want you to make him an offering to me. And Abraham, being fully persuaded, said, yes, God. So he loaded up wood, robes, everything needed to do that, went up to the top of the mountain because he was fully persuaded 
that the God that had given him his promise, if he took him away, will bring him back again. So he got up there to the moment of offering his son up. The Bible says at that moment when he raised the knife, an angel shouted out, stop, don't do that. And Abraham stopped and all of a sudden he looked up and all of a sudden in the bushes, it says in the thicket, there was a ram in the thicket. What was the ram? The ram is a type and shadow of Jesus. He was a substitute sacrifice. And so Abraham did not have to give up his firstborn son because God offered a substitute sacrifice who we know today is a type and shadow of Jesus. So God said, you don't have to give up your son to pay the price. I'm going to give you my son to pay the price. And right there, close to the same spot, God offers up his first born his son to be a substitute sacrifice for all of us. And it's right there in the story. And the first century Jews realized that because it wasn't that long ago, they actually saw Jesus go to the cross and was the man in the middle crossing and he was sacrificed. He went to the grave and resurrected power. But back there, Abraham was so fully persuaded that if he had to bring a sacrifice and pay it with his life son, that God would resurrect the promise again. But God offered a substitute sacrifice. Oh, if we would understand how much our God loves us. We would be fully persuaded that in our most difficult of time, that it's okay, you can make it because God offered a substitute sacrifice, his only son, in place of you. There's a ram in your thicket and his name is Jesus. It's a substitute sacrifice that God Can you be fully persuaded with the ram in the thicket with a substitute sacrifice? Abraham was. This is before the law and he's reminding the first century Christians And then 1,800 years later, almost at the same spot, God would give his firstborn as a substitute sacrifice. And Abraham looks at his son, and they're thanking God, and he names the mountain. He says, we need to name this mountain. The mountain has given two names or two meanings. And he says, the Lord will provide. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided, which literally means the Lord has been seen on this mountain, and the Lord shall be seen on this mountain again. Now, if you're a first century Jew and you hear the story, you're reminded that God has provided, and God will provide again what you cannot provide. He has provided. I want to ask you a question. If faith is divine persuasion, have you been to the mountain? Have you seen God? Has he revealed himself to you? Have you seen him? Can you see him? Can you see the man on the middle cross? He was the substitute sacrifice. He was the ram caught in the thicket. He's the only one who could be the substitute sacrifice. Have you seen him? Have you seen him? The man on the middle cross, the one who died for your sins, yet knew no sin? Have you seen him? What will you do with the man on the middle cross? What will you do with a substitute sacrifice? Will you receive him and believe in him? Will you accept his divine persuasion? He paid the price. He took the pain. He took the judgment. He took the guilt. So whoever he sets free is free indeed. Have you seen him? Have you considered what he's done? Have you seen him? Have you been to the mountain? Has he revealed himself? I want to say this morning, I've been to the mountain. I've seen him, and I'm not talking about going to Israel and being there. I've been at that spot. I'm not talking about you physically seeing Jesus. I'm not talking about it, but I've, seen, I've been to the mountain, and I've seen Jesus. I've seen him. I've seen him forgive me when I didn't deserve to be forgiven. I've seen him love me when I didn't deserve to be loved, and nobody else did. I've seen him restore me when I've been broken and hurting. I've seen him pick me up and carry me when I've crumbled to the ground, ready to quit. Have you been to the mountain? 
Have you seen him? In your worst time, in your darkest hour, have you seen the light and the help and hope that he brings to the substitute sacrifice? Have you seen him? Has he revealed himself to you? That's my question. Have you been to the mountain and have you seen him? I've been to the mountain. I've seen him. The substitute sacrifice, the man on the middle cross, the one who came from the empty tomb. And I'm fully persuaded. I'm fully persuaded. I'm fully persuaded. And he's everything I want and everything I could ever want. I'm fully persuaded. Have you seen him? And Abraham named the place the Lord has been seen here and the Lord will be seen here. And I pray, I pray, my prayers that you see him for who he is and that the divine creator will divinely persuade you today that he will reveal himself to you. The writer of Hebrews is saying, back there, back there, there's nothing. There's nothing back there because all of it points to Jesus and all of it points forward. Don't go back. Have you seen him? His name is Jesus. He is the ram in the thicket. He is your substitute sacrifice. And he is a good and faithful God. Every head bowed, every eye closed. My heart, my hope today was to look at the life of Abraham as the writer of Hebrews had written it, not just for the first century Jews, but for me, for you, for 2020, for all of us right here at home or all of us right here in the auditorium. And my question is this today. Has he revealed himself to you in some capacity today? Has he spoke to you? Have you seen him for who he is? The savior, the the man on the middle cross who was there for six hours and then went to a tomb, the man from the empty grave and rose again in resurrection power for you. Have you seen him? Has he revealed himself to you today? Because he's here. He's here because you're here. He's here to be your substitute sacrifice. He's here to be your ram in the thicket, to do what you cannot do, to pay the price you could never pay. He's here. We hope that you enjoyed this message. You can find more messages and information about Tree of Life Church at treeoflifechurch.org. We'd like to invite you to come visit us at 5513 IH35 South in New Braunfels, Texas, or you can watch us on live stream. Thank you again for listening.